The opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the sixth roundtable discussion produced by Transparent Media Truth. In this episode, we are proud to bring together two political powerhouses in the truther community, historian G. Edward Griffin and Danish political activist Mads Palvig. This discussion was recorded on June 3rd, 2020. G. Edward Griffin is perhaps best known for his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a striking expose of the birth behind the central banking system in the United States. But he also has a long history of uncovering connections within the capstone cabal with other works, including World Without Cancer, The Capitalist Conspiracy, and The Grand Design, among others. He is the publisher of Need to Know News and the founder of Freedom Force International and Red Pill University, which produces the annual Red Pill Expo. Mr. Griffin has worked tirelessly for decades to expose the inner workings of the corporate elite, and we are proud to have him as a participant in this week's episode. Go to redpilluniversity.org for more information. Our second guest, Mads Palsvig, is the founder of the Danish political party JFK 21, which translates to Earth, Freedom, and Knowledge Party for the 21st Century, in opposition to the centrally controlled billionaire-funded Initiative Agenda 21 proposed by the United Nations. Mads was blacklisted from a 30-year career working as an investment banker and trader for some of the world's top banking institutions after questioning a member of the U.S. Federal Reserve about policies detrimental to the majority of U.S. citizens. After his dismissal, he dove down the rabbit hole of privately owned central banking institutions and felt compelled to dedicate his life to fighting the establishment he realized created so much wealth for a few while imposing poverty on the many. Find out more at jfk21.dk or look up Mads Palsvig on YouTube. I will be your host. My name is Doug McKenty, and you can find out more about my work at The Shift with Doug McKenty on YouTube and Facebook, at dmckenty on Twitter, or check out theshiftnow.com. Finally, I would like to thank producer Rob Rubin for making this discussion possible. Go to transparentmediatruth.com or the Transparent Media Truth channel on YouTube for more about this and all other roundtable discussions. I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself, G. Edward Griffin, and Mads Palsvig. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining me here on this roundtable. Very excited to have you all. Uh, I am joined today by G. Edward Griffin, a historian done a lot of work, been working in the scene for many, many decades, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island and World Without Cancer, um, up to date on what's going on right now. Looking forward to hearing from him. And he'll be speaking in this roundtable with Mads Palsvig, who is the founder of the JFK 21 political party in Denmark, in Europe, and has been very active in uh, trying to make political change over there. Um, I just want to start off the conversation by getting a personal history from the two of them, from their perspective, and uh, then we'll get into the discussion. I'm really looking forward to hearing what these guys think about what's really happening in the big picture, but then getting more specific into uh, what's been happening in the last couple of months. Definitely no shortage of things to talk about today. So, uh, Mr. Griffin, do you want to you just get started? Tell us a little bit about your history and uh, what you're doing currently. Uh, just in terms of your political activism? Well, sure, a, a very little bit, I hope, because it's not too important. 
certainly not impressive. I'm an accidental historian. You, you introduced me as a historian. I like that. It sounds very yeah. prestigious. And I guess I am. But like most people, in, I imagine most historians too, their specialties are very narrow. I mean, history is a big, big topic. So my, my focus is primarily on two fields that I've had a chance to do some research on. One is, uh, you've already mentioned, the, uh, the Federal Reserve System. My book, uh, the, the Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, is another accident. It was an accidental success because I thought I was just writing for uh, the, the archives in case that somebody unearthed uh, the destroyed civilization uh, a thousand years from now, they'd find out, oh, look what happened. And that was, I didn't think anybody wanted to read that book. So that was accidental, and uh, I'm very delighted that it has turned into a big seller. So it's all about the Federal Reserve, and, and I wrote it um, primarily as not a, a book on money and banking, because that story really isn't about money and banking. It's, it's a whodunit. It's a crime. One of the biggest crimes of, imaginable, actually, that the creation of money and getting everybody to use it and not question how, where it came from and who's controlling it and what its value is and how it can be manipulated and how it can be used to enslave people. All those questions nobody even thinks about. And certainly I didn't either before I got started on it. So that's what, what I did there. That was an accidental success. Um, before that, I had written a book on, uh, it was called World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. And that was an accidental thing too, because I knew nothing about medicine or cancer or research or therapy, anything like that. But a good friend of mine at the time, this was back in the 1970s, and the book was published in 1974. But a good friend of mine was a, a doctor in the San Francisco area, Dr. John Richardson, and he uh, started using an unapproved uh, cure for cancer, or treatment for cancer, I should say. And uh, he got into trouble with the medical association and with the government because he was using something that was unapproved. And uh, But he said, wait a minute, guys, it, it works. Look, I've, I've got more success than anybody that you can name. By far, I'm actually saving lives. And the answer came back, well, we don't care about that. You have to follow the rules, and you can't use it unless it's approved. And that means, of course, it has to go through the FDA. And of course, I didn't know any of that background of who controls the FDA and mm -hmm. all of that. So John came to me and he asked me if I could help him write an article, a magazine article or something like that, to explain what he was doing, why he was doing it, how this substance worked or how they thought it worked so we could get these um, these jerks off of his back and let him go back and save lives. So I said, sure, John, I'll help you out. I'm, that's what I do. And I had no idea the voltage in that wire that I was going to grab hold of. So I wrote the book uh, some years later after a lot of time and research and getting up to speed on how all of this works. And that too has been a, an accidental success. It still is a, a best-selling book. Almost sold as many copies as The Creature from Jekyll Island, but it's in a whole different field. So in a nutshell, uh, gentlemen, that's who I am and what I am. I'm sort of an accidental uh, writer. I, I never thought I could write. I always thought I would be um, acting. I, when I went through school, I thought I'd be an actor or film producer or something in the entertainment field. But here I am, and uh, the forces of, um, of nature, the forces of history have had a big impact on my life. So thanks for inviting me. Oh, thanks for being here. Did you, were you already skeptical of the system in general before you started writing these books? Or is this a journey? Did you go down the rabbit hole yourself as you started to investigate? I mean, 
from what I've seen, um, you're really kind of an, an early researcher, although there were people doing this kind of work before you, but uh, um, you know, you really pioneered a lot of certainly what my generation understands about uh, the way the system works now. Was this something that you had discovered uh, when you were younger or was it something you discovered as you were writing? Definitely discovered it as I was writing. It was a journey, exactly that. Uh, I've already explained the, uh, the way I got into this topic of cancer research and therapy. I had no preconceived idea of it at all. And I had to learn everything. I mean, a lot of technical terms, and it, I guess in a way I had to actually go to school, but my my teachers were not professors, and I didn't sit in the classroom. My teachers were practitioners, people who were treating patients, doctors. And I did have a chance to research some hardcore researchers too. I mean, when I say research, I meet them and talk to them and get their papers and sit down with them and ask them to explain very slowly what what they mean by this and what's going on. So I did go to school in a way, but it, I never got an accreditation a diploma or anything, but I did learn from very high quali qualified teachers. So I, I didn't know anything about this. And, uh, and some of these fellows, by the way, uh, they... They said, you know, you're lucky, Ed, that you, you didn't know anything about this in school, didn't study it. And I said, well, what do you mean lucky? And they said, well, you didn't have to unlearn anything. <laughs> and, I, and I came to realize fully later on the significance of what they were saying. They, they were basically saying, look, those of us that have gone through medical school or gone through the system, we're, we're loaded up with information that basically is not true. We have to, and we believe in it at, at first because we were taught it. And... Uh, Everybody, you know, you went along with the crowd. It's consensus, consensus medicine, consensus science, you know. So, and we had to unlearn all of that, and it was hard to get back to ground zero. So I actually believe that's true. And then it was the same thing with money and banking. I knew nothing about that. So it turns out that maybe that was the ideal circumstance. Maybe somebody who had a degree would have more trouble recognizing the truth than myself, who I had no preconceived ideas whatsoever. Right. And will you uh, tell the audience a little bit about the Red Pill Expo as well and what you're currently working on? Yes, thanks for asking about that one because that really is where I'm spending literally, I'm going to say 95% of my waking hours is developing the Red Pill Expo and the Red Pill University. Those two together we call the uh, Project Red Pill. And it, it uh, if you, as most people would know from the name if they remember that the Red Pill is a meme that came from a sci-fi movie about 20 years ago was released uh, <clears throat> called The Matrix. And in the story, of course, uh, mankind is, has degenerated and been captured by a matrix, which is like a giant uh, computer system. And uh, they're all wired into the system and, the, and their brains are captured by the matrix. And everything they experience, everything they think, everything they see, touch, feel, smell, anything, it's an illusion. They're just lying there. I mean, they're, they're doing nothing, but it's all in their imagination. It's all an illusion, and they think they're leading normal lives. But, of course, they're just captive, and their resources, their body resources and their brains are being used to, to support the, the matrix. And so when the humans want to break out of that, out of the matrix, and see reality as it really is, life the way it really is, sometimes it's harsh, but it's real. And a lot of humans don't like the reality because it's harsh. They'd rather go back 
into the vat or wherever they are and enjoy the illusion. Anyway, in order to get out, you've got to take the red pill. That sort of does the job. And uh, then you can see life the way it is. Okay, that's the basis of the story. And when people say, take the red pill, man, that's what it means. Uh, you know, wake up break out of these illusions. So I thought it was a perfect meme for everything I had been learning up until recently. Everything I touched, it was an illusion. And most of these things were cherished beliefs on my part. So I thought that we, as we got deeper into this, that uh, maybe we ought to quit looking so much at these specific instances, you know, like like money and banking is a huge instance. And of course, healthcare is a huge instance. And now we've got pandemics, which is a huge instance. Now we've got riots in the street and racism, huge instances. But if you pull back, you realize, oh my gosh, these, all of these things are illusions. The reality of what we're looking at is not as it appears on our television screens. So we got the idea about five years ago that maybe we should go to the theme of illusion versus reality, because that really is at the basis of everything that confronts us and prevents us from leading normal, fulfilling lives as human beings. And so we created the idea of using the red pill meme as a means of talking about these issues. And it worked. It was kind of an experiment. I was afraid that people might think it's kind of frivolous. You're not really serious. You got get serious. Don't talk about sci-fi movies and all that pop culture. But it, it does work because the analogy of that meme is so true. And I think everybody can see it. So we decided to put on a red pill expo. That was uh, back in 2017, I think it was, and we had we put it on at um, the first one was in Bozeman, Montana, of all places. I thought, well, that's kind of out of out of the way, but we had a very good deal on a nice facility there, and one of our sponsors and one of our uh, members of our council, I should say, and one of our organizers lived in Bozeman. He said, "Hey, I know these people. We can we can put on an event here," and we had no money, of course, so we had to go where the where the price tag looked most affordable. So we thought, okay, we'll put it on in Bozeman, Montana. Nobody wants to come to Bozeman, do they? Well, it turned out a lot of people wanted to come to Bozeman, including myself. Uh, a lot of people, and myself included, wanted to see some of those national parks there. We always wanted to see Montana, heard a lot about it, no excuse to go. Now I got an excuse to go. So it turns out a lot of people had that attitude, and we packed the place. We expected a couple of hundred people, and the place was full. I think it was 650 people came from seven different countries, I think. They came from everywhere. So we knew we had hit the right nerve. And uh, so we had a couple of more Red Pill Expos. We we're getting ready to put on our next one, which was scheduled to be going on just about now, as a matter of fact, on Jekyll Island, of all places. Now, Jekyll Island, of course, is you find that in the title of the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And it's because the, on Jekyll Island is where the Federal Reserve System was conceived back in 1910 at a very highly secret meeting there. It was a, you talk about a conspiracy, conspiracy theory, my foot, there it was. it was. And they've written books about it. The guys that participated in it called it a conspiracy. They said, yeah, we went there to hide. We went there to <clears throat> make sure that nobody knew what we were doing because if they knew what we were doing, they probably would stop us from doing it. And uh, I mean, these are the guys that, that went to that meeting and formed the Federal Reserve, writing about it years later and describing it just the way I said. So uh, we were going to hold this meeting, our next expo, on Jekyll Island right now. Well, of course, the the pandemic came along and uh, we we had to change our plans. We've rescheduled it now uh, for October, and I see I'm great. I'm gratefully I'm great. 
I'm greatly hopeful, I should say, that we can actually put it on as planned on Jekyll Island back in November. Now, what do we do at these expos? We do a couple of things. We have a, a gigantic uh, collection of experts from around the world who speak on their specialties, whether it's medicine or banking or education uh, or news or any, I mean, everywhere you look, we have people who, in most cases, they came from their professional fields uh, because they took the red pill. And they realized that, oh my gosh, everything I believed in, everything I was doing, everything that, I, that made me famous and, and wealthy, everything, I was working on an illusion. And now they want to tell everybody about the truth of what's really going on. So we have these people there. And uh, we decided that back in the Bozeman experience, that it was so successful that it was a shame just to do it once a year. And so we felt that the Red Pill Expo needed to be fired up and running 365 days a year, if possible. And so the idea came forth that maybe we should have something called Red Pill University. And indeed, that's what we now have. That's a reality, and I've been working full-time on it. Uh, gentlemen, I've been working, uh, when I say full-time, not full-time, I still have a few hours to sleep, <laughs> but uh, probably about 14 hours a day at minimum on Red Pill University. And um, the idea there is it's, it's an online uh, continuation of the Red Pill Expo, except it's on steroids because it's going all the time. And not only that, we're in the process now of building what we call campuses because we need boots on the ground. You can't, you can't change society. You can't counter these great forces that we're facing. I don't believe you can counter that by sending emails and participating on something on the internet. You've got to get, get together and form local organizations. We see the value of that right now. Uh, like the click of a finger, all of a sudden we have these riots showing up all of these cities all around the country. They're all using the same slogans. They all have the same uh, ideas, and they're all funded by the same source. By the way, I think everybody should know that by now. It's, it's George Soros and his huge fortune that he, he gets, not just his own money, but he gets a lot of it from Europe. We can talk about that later. And so we, we realize that these organizations exist. They're boots on the ground. They're ready to go. And they go from city to city. They travel in buses, and they're, they're, they're organized. They're trained. They have um, plans. They're funded. They have communications, strategies. And we're saying, gee, is, is this an upwelling of the population? No, it's theater. It's theater, but it happens because there are organizations that exist all around us, and there they are, and they're taken over. And so you can't fight that unless you have organizations on the ground. I call it boots on the ground. So right. uh, the foundation for that is our campuses of the Red Pill University, and that's what we're trying to build right now. So that's a little bit of an introduction. We could talk for days on it, but in other words, we're not just sitting here saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What's going on? I wonder what's going to happen next. We know what's going to happen next if we don't do something. We know who's behind it. We know what their strategies are. We have the ideology that it's superior to theirs. Theirs is collectivism. It's, uh, that's the, uh, the general name for it. I mean, communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, all those isms are variants of collectivism, where the group is more important than the individual, and there's always some individual or party that says, we speak for the people, and uh, all that sort of thing. 
And, and it, that's the underlying ideology. The opposite ideology is individualism. We understand that. Most people never heard of these words. But we're ready to go. All we need to do, we've got the plan. We've got the structure, the strategies. We're just now trying to build. We're trying to put boots on the ground, get accolades in here to study and learn what it's all about, see through the illusion, take the red pill, and get out there and retake America. All right. Well, this is a great segue right into Mads Palzvig's story. He is one of those people that was uh, doing really well for himself in the world of investment banking uh, and then discovered what was really going on. So he, he might be one of those people at the Red Pill Expo thinking, my God, I can't believe how different the world really is from what it was. Mads, do you want to tell a little bit about your story? Yeah, well, thanks a lot. And first, uh, thanks for the invitation. Obviously, it's uh, it's a thrill to be here. And uh, I never thought I would meet you, <laughs> Mr. Griffin, in uh, even if it's only here on a uh, on the internet. But it's uh, it's a real pleasure. Of course, I read your book, and um, you are the, one of the many um, many many stalwarts who have uh, helped me uh, realize what's going on. And um, I, I can really relate to your your word accidental because I feel like I'm the I'm an accidental whistleblower. My background is my father was a children psychologist, and all his friends were the good kind of left wing people, the ones who believe in utopia and uh, that uh, the 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 strongest uh, people should bear the heaviest heaviest burden, and that everybody deserves a um, a, um, a a good life and. Um, and, and everybody has a value and, and should reach their full potential and so on. He helped a lot of young people. So for me to 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 become a banker, my father once said, uh, you know, if you can't become anything else, you've always become a banker. And that's what I, I ended up being. And uh, but I thought, you know, even then, it's also noble if you are if you are, uh, you know, connecting borrowers and lenders. You can actually help um, increase economic uh, growth. Uh, but then when I when I when I when when my job I was a trader I was not a salesperson so I was a trader so I'm like kind of a mix I have a, a few degrees so I'm an academic but you don't make money from academics we used to call the the economists reverse indicators uh, as a joke because whatever the economists did whatever they recommended anything we would always do the opposite and make money of it um, so it was a, a joke on the trading floor. Uh, so I'm kind of a, an academic, but I'm also a builder. I'm a tradesperson, you can say, because um, my job is not to lose money. My job is to make money. And so I get a lot of news. And if I believe in fake news, I lose money. So I have to train as a trader. What we do is we train our bullshit, uh, our nose, uh, a bullshit detector, right? So we, we kind of learn how to how to, to figure out what is real news. And we, we have a... One of the most important parts we do is to talk talk with people. I had a, a fantastic network of, of informants and um, and people I talked with. We had dinners. I met most of the members of the Federal Reserve. I met privately, personally. I met private. I had private meetings with Ben Bernanke. I had dinner with Janet Yellen. I had uh, drinks with Christian uh, Neuer, Costa Lacosha, Geithner. I met all these people. You know. And um, so I was used to, to getting really, really good info. And um, then I, I, I started noticing a pattern that with the IMF, the bailouts, um, that whenever there was a country in trouble, oh my, would they really be in big trouble a few years later if they took the IMF packages? Because 
uh, what happened, for example, with Greece, you would you lend them money at 10%. They would, uh, as a condition for the loan, they would tell them they had to uh, sack a lot of public uh, service uh, workers and they would hike taxes. Then the, the unemployment would go up, the economy would plummet. And then, of course, they couldn't pay the 10% interest. And then they would go out and they would take out the real value of the country, just like John Perkins uh, mentions in his uh, in his books. Um, so I, I kind of started talking about this. You know, I mean, I'm saying, you know, if I'm if I'm going to to invest as a, a good person, I want to lose money. I have to invest the way, <coughs> you know, predicting uh, that uh, it's going to end, be a horror show for for these ordinary citizens. And I became more and more vocal about it. So, I mean, you can call me kind of an accidental whistleblower. And um, one of the last things I did was. Um, I didn't know at the time that Federal Reserve was was a privately owned organization. So when I met Janet Yellen for dinner at the Lanesborough Hotel in London with a group of traders and some professors uh, from London, um, I was not aware we were colleagues, in fact. <laughs> I thought she was like a, a public service uh, worker who had no clue what she was doing. So I was uh, grilling her and uh, we had a few, you know, vintage champagne. We had uh, a lot of good uh, wine and it was like kind of a, you know, arrogant young trader. So I was like, you know, telling him, what are you doing? You know, and I was going on with America, 50 million on food stamps. What are you doing? Man, you're so rich. And why do we have to, you know, have all these, uh, you know, bases all over the world? And why whenever you go into a country, they always end up worse. What's going on with the IMF, the World Bank, all this? I mean, can't you do better than that? And I had already at Morgan Stanley in London, I had made my whole budget already in the end of March, early April. So I was like feeling very confident. I've never heard of a trader getting sacked when he's made his budget in three, four months. And uh, three weeks later, I was called into an office and I was sacked. Like, what, what are you doing? I, I mean, I, I, I always felt so secure in American corporations because um, it's a meritocracy. If you, if you do well, if you're friendly with your colleagues and you get up and you meet at time in the morning, I think you have a lot of job security in American corporations, counter to what the Danish press likes to, to tell. But I think you have a lot of, of, um, of job security. I always felt very secure. I mean, two months before, they asked me to, to take a promotion and move to New York. And I said no, because at the time, I was living in London with my son. And we were, I was, we, him and my son, we were flying back to see my, my wife and our two, my, my two, our two daughters every weekend. So New York would be a little bit too far away. So anyway, so I was like an accidental whistleblower because I was on the, I was, I didn't know Federal Reserve was privately owned, but I could see, I could tell because I was, I was partly academic, partly a builder, a tradesman. So I could see that it was not right what was going on. And I was uh, saying, I was uh, explaining this. And um, and after that, I found out I was, I was, I was blacklisted. I, it was very difficult for me to get a job, which is kind of unusual when you, in a good year, could could make a um, hundred million dollar profit for your company, which is a lot of money. Uh, so I thought, you know, if anybody should be able to get any job, that would be me. I, I felt very secure, and all of a sudden, I was blacklisted. I I found one job one at one point, and I had the job. You know, you go through the usual ten interviews; everything was fine. Um, particularly the Americans, I get along very well with, so they all wanted to hire me, and um, and then he actually. Later, I didn't get the job. The headhunter thought I had the job. Later, 
I then got in touch with a Swedish, uh, one of the Swedish guys in the process, and Danes and Swedes, we like we like to fight, but we are, we are really brothers. We always stick together. To be to be true, to be fair, yeah. So we really like each other. But uh, so I called him and said, you know, what's really going on there? And he said, you know what happened? The CEO from the bank called and said you could not hire Matt Spalsby. So, <laughs> so I was like, what is going on? Wow. And, then I had time to study, and I found out I read I read your book, so <laughs> it was like amazing, and uh, of course uh, uh, a lot of other books. And I, I, I find out this was like an, a, a journey into you know crimes incorporated. That was like every stone you 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 looked under. There's another another body, right? You know, it's the military industrial complex mafia. It's the big pharma. It's a mafia. It's like. It's it's now the telecom corporation putting up the five G network, which uh, there are thirty thousand studies from emfportal.org, uh, proving scientifically that it is very very damaging to humans' health and nature and insects and animals. Yet they are all the all the governments are and, and the health authorities are, are putting it, all these uh, this five G up. So it's like it's it's crimes everywhere. And um, I agree with this, with, with your view that it's a uh, te- technocracy, collectivism. That you know, these this new world order is another kind of, of, of communism or Nazism or whatever it is. But it certainly is a, a global dictatorship. I think that what they're trying to do now is what it was a pilot project what they did in in uh, in Mao, Mao and uh, Trotsky's Russia and China. And, and uh, I think that's what they want to do now. And you can even say uh, Phnom Penh, uh, the Khmer Rouge as well, where they took out. All the academics and send them out out of the cities. I mean, it's a little bit the same what they're doing now. You're just telling people they can't work. What's going on? It's 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 insane. And now we are very vocal here. We make a lot of demonstrations and um, putting a lot of pressure. We are writing notices of liability nonstop to journalists, to politicians, to CEOs, and um, and and then now even our. Our propaganda television corporation, which is like the BBC and the CNN, it's called Denmark's Radio, which is uh, funded by taxpayer money. Even they came now out a couple of days ago admitting that only 525 people died with corona and 500 of those died of other causes. So we're down to 24 people. And we don't, and even those they admitted, maybe they died from something else, but it could be they died from that. An average age of the 524 dead um, is 81 years old, and the average of a, da- a Dane, any Dane dying, is also 81 years of age. So, and we've spent 15 uh, 15 billion uh, krona. That's uh, that's two billion euros on each <laughs> each. Uh, dead person. I mean, imagine how much welfare you could get for that money. And now, then, and and then, when you realize everything is a hoax, everything is wrong. They, this corona was not as dangerous as they as we all feared, including myself. I mean, I I cancelled all demonstrations for five weeks just to until I was one hundred percent certain what was going on. So I didn't do. I didn't just rush out and say it's all a hoax. I was I was I was I was prudent. I was um, I waited, you know, until I was certain. Uh, but but now they, they they're not even they're not even uh, opening up all of Denmark. We can only go to Germany and Iceland and Norway. So they they you know I think they are uh, you know it, it it's it's they're just lying their teeth off. And now of course now you have the, as as you mentioned now they're making all these riots to 
to talk about something else. And also, I think they're afraid of, of people making riots against these governments for their mismanagement. So it's better to have a riot over two uh, ex-colleagues, the, 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 black, the black victim and the, the white police officer were, were colleagues for 17 years in the security corporation. Obviously, it's a, it's a false flag. They are crisis actors, I'm, I'm 100% certain. I, I hope he didn't die, the, the black guy. They, they sometimes kill, kill these people, but uh, often they don't. Uh, so let's hope he's alive. And will you uh, discuss for the audience the political party, JFK 21, and, and the activism that you're doing now, now that you've been red-pilled? Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, one way to, to really expose uh, the, uh, the system, how evil it is, and how wrong it is, is just to, to explain what would be nice and, and good for, the, for, the, for every country, and for, certainly for Denmark. And just by, so we made 30, 31 key issues, and each of them has been designed so that there was, if there was a referendum, I, I, as a trader, as a man who have made a living out of gambling, um, will say that more than 50% of the Danish population would vote yes. And now, out of those 31 uh, key issues, none of them has been taken up by any other political party. I have not, for four and a half years, I have not been on Danish television or Danish radio on, on the main, main channel. Well, and this is unheard of. It's never happened before, ever, in Denmark, a political party. And... Um, I was the first time I was on Friday, I was on Danish radio for six minutes. Obviously, that was a program about conspiracy theorists. So they wanted to kind of put me in a corner with that, not as, an, not as a professional with a large CV, a former investment banker with three degrees. Obviously, they don't want to, know, don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I just, uh, you know, talked a little bit about that. And I'm, I'm going to be on television in two weeks time. And that is another guy who's who's really funny. It's a Danish guy who's um, who's a great journalist. He's kind of a uh, but he's one who's who's making kind of a satire, making fun of people. Yeah, so they're already going to try to to make fun of me, and I look forward to that challenge. Sure. I mean, dealing with the mainstream media, it's unbelievable these days. Um, and then, of course, so many independent publishers um, are having a hard time getting the word out because of the censorship. So it's just. Uh, we're getting squeezed in a lot of ways right now. One of the things I'd like to discuss with the two of you, now that we've kind of gotten the introductions out of the way, is the way that this system, uh, I think both of you have described it as a mafia-type system, and it really is a cartel system. I've seen graphs where uh, each bank, there's five major banks in the United States, transnational corporations, of course, so they're all over the world, but then each one of these will have a, a pharmaceutical company attached to them, a uh, major media uh, corporation attached to them. And and then, of course, the five bankers are colluding through the central banking system and, and other organizations that they fund together. Um, so maybe, Mr. Griffin, we could start with you. Just to make that connection between, you know, how is it that this banking institution, this central banking institution, which we've already touched on, how it it's funding a lot of this just through them, not only on the national levels, but then they're, of course, funding all the money through to Wall Street and funding the monies to these various other transnational corporations, uh, how they work together um, to create this kind of, well, if you want to call it the one world system that they've been building now for so long. Yes, I think the observation that what we're talking about is a system of cartels is extremely important because that is the correct definition of what we're looking at. 
And in case there's anybody out there that's uncertain about what a cartel is, should explain it's a very simple concept. A cartel is a group of independent companies that appear to be competitors. They're all in, usually all in the same or similar fields like entertainment or sports or construction or whatever. And they, instead of competing with each other, they've decided to form a coalition among themselves so they can agree not to compete on price or products or territory or whatever. And they share patents and processes and they, they form cartel agreements with each other. And the purpose of all of that is to um, improve their profit margin so they don't have to lower prices in order to get, uh, to get customers. They don't have to come up with new ideas and so forth. And so they, they have these agreements so they can improve their profit margins knowing that there will be no competitors that come up and offer a better product or a lower price because they've got it all locked up by agreement. So you see that in the oil cartel and the banana cartel now we see it in the in the banking cartel. So that's all it is, and it's illegal as heck. Um, and, but nevertheless, they always find ways to get around it because they're, they make the money. And if you make the money, you can buy the politicians. And if you can buy the politicians, you can pass the laws. And if you can pass the laws, you can, you can uh, legally plunder the population and you can outlaw competition and all the rest. So that's how that works. So it's important to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, in every field we look at, banking, healthcare, communications, uh, energy, everything, we're, we're living in a world of cartels. And these cartels, because of their great power and, and control over finances, have literally captured the governments of the world. And uh, so when people talk about regulatory capture, that's what they're talking about. The FDA, for example, long ago was captured by the pharmaceutical industry, which they're supposed to regulate. So the regulators really are hidden covert representatives of the pharmaceutical industry. So you find that everywhere you look in government. Uh, so having said that, no, that's what we're dealing with. And um, most people ha have no idea. I, I certainly didn't suspect that. I didn't even know what a cartel was until I got Starting to, I knew that they were bad somehow. Oh, yeah, those cartels. Those are the those are the guys down down in South America that kill each other for the drug trade, right? Marijuana and cocaine. Yeah, cartels are bad. I never realized that every time I go to the store, I I'm paying money to a cartel of some kind for my product or my service. So, um, okay, I, I guess the gist of your question was: is is this true or not? And it, it is true. And until we understand. Uh, that that's the world we live in, we're not going to be able to change it. Uh, a, so uh, would you rephrase it? There's an essence to your question that I missed. I just want to confirm that you're absolutely right about cartels. Well, I think where I wanted to go with this is just the, uh, it's the fact that people think that quote unquote conspiracy theory is just so crazy because they, they're not all colluding, you know, and not, and not all of these people can be in on it together. And yet clearly you can see with a little bit of research that there are, you know, there is this collusion going on. I mean, it's called the central banking system. And then also, um, you know, how can I think a lot of people then question, well, surely there's not a big conspiracy going on because there there shouldn't be 
they don't see the connection between these central bankers and then the way the pharmaceutical companies might be acting or the way the media companies might be acting when in fact you can see the connections if the bankers are are on on the top then and then they really can like the octopus controlling everything you know reach out into any of the uh, these other sectors of the economy and exert just quite a bit of control more control than most people i think are able to realize well, I think that's true. And I think the example we had just a few minutes ago about how somebody, a CEO of a company could make a phone call to another company right. and say, you know, or the, of, even of the same company, don't hire this guy. Yeah, he could make us a lot of money. He's a great guy. He's exactly what we need, but don't hire him because he's exposing our shenanigans. He's exposing our crime. And so, yeah, the... Um, the idea of a conspiracy theory is intriguing to me at different levels. First of all, when people assume that there are no conspiracies out there, I have to laugh. Uh, I feel sorry for them, really, because it tells me that they've never read a history book. Because history is loaded with conspiracies from top to bottom. In fact, I would venture to guess from what I've learned is that conspiracy is the, is the most powerful driving force of history. All the great wars, all the great exchanges of power uh, have come about because of conspiracies. If you go to, and sit in, in a courtroom in any county in the United States or any place in the world, or even the city courtroom, and just listen to the cases that are being tried, if you get past the traffic tickets and the family squabbles to get into the real, the real crimes, uh, not that family squabbles can't end up in crime, but you get my drift. If you're talking about any crime that involves the theft of millions and millions of dollars or the denial of human rights to somebody else and so forth. These are, these are the real crimes in my book. And you sit there and listen to them and, and I'm gonna just guess that over half of them deal with conspiracies and you'll find the word conspiracy in the lawsuit. Somebody conspired to, to um, steal money from the corporation. Somebody conspired not to pay their taxes. Somebody conspired to do this this it's it's the force of history so when people say oh this guy believes in conspiracies i think that this we need to look carefully at whoever is saying that and feel sorry for them because they don't really understand what what the world is like so having said that uh, still i want to say that not everything we're talking about uh, really fits the the definition because especially lately it's all out in the open I mean, they're not really hiding what they're trying to do. The way they, the way they uh, are doing it now is that they're using phrases and ideas that makes something that normally we would consider to be a crime, it makes it sound like a virtue. And uh, so that's the trick. It's more semantics. And I can't think of anything better right now because of something I was just dealing with recently is this, the idea that the coronavirus, uh, I call it the pandemic or theater um, has uh, devastated and is in the process of devastating so many millions of lives, not only in America, but around the world. And uh, how, how dare they lock people up? We know that it's a nothing burger virus and it's greatly exaggerated. They're lying about the numbers and they, yet they still proceed with, we got we to gotta protect humanity. We gotta, we're saving lives, right? Stay home and save lives. You see that all the way around posters. So you see, they're saying stay home and save lives. That, in other words, that makes it a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing because you're saving lives. And so the reason I'm going into this is because this is a very fundamental example of how they work. Um, 
you see the demonstrators come out now and they've got their placards and they say, I have rights. I have human rights. They're taking my rights away from me. And I don't care. You can't do that. I'm standing firm. And I have the First Amendment. I have the Fifth Amendment. I have, you know, I have a right to travel. How dare you lock me down? Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is no, you don't have a right. No one has a right. Even if, I don't care whose constitution they live under. No one has a right to drive 300 miles an hour on the wrong side of the freeway. No one has a right to yell fire in a crowded theater. No one has a right to do anything that endangers the life or the health of another person, especially if you're gonna kill somebody by spreading a terrible disease. You do not have that right in the constitution. And this is established not only by logic, but it's established by Supreme Court decisions. I know in the United States it has been and probably in most of the countries of the world. So what, how dare we say uh, we, this is wrong? Because you see, they're protecting lives. That's what they say. But now, okay, the trick is they're lying about protecting lives. See, that's the thing. If as long as we don't question their theme and say, yeah, well, of course, we're protecting lives. Well, if, once you yield on that point and stop talking about that, then you lose the argument. You, you just gave away your rights. So we have to understand that they're playing semantics with us. They're lying to us. If it were true, if, it, if the coronavirus really were as deadly as they'd like us to believe, well, then they have a point. If it really was a danger to millions and millions of people, they have a point. But they're lying about it. So you see, is this a conspiracy? I think it is because they're lying, all right? And so and that's where it comes under the tent as a conspiracy. They're doing something. They're using a false argument, but people believe it's a true argument. And so they get tricked into going along with something that they really wouldn't do if they understood the facts behind it. So back to the word conspiracy. Conspiracy is defined in the dictionary approximately as follows. It's any, when two or more people come together to perform some activity in secret and the activity is either unethical or illegal. That's the definition, all the decks, those are the three ingredients. So what we're talking about in most cases, there's no question about two or more people coming together. There's no question about them doing most of what they're doing in secret. So on the first two points, it's a conspiracy. But on the third point, are they doing something that is illegal or immoral? Well, in most cases, it's not illegal because these are the people who passed the laws to make whatever they're doing entirely legal. The Federal Reserve is a perfect example. They're stealing from the people. <laughs> They're creating money out of nothing. And they created laws that make it legal. In fact, they have to do it. So it's not illegal. So that leaves the issue of morality. That's all we can hang our hat on. And I think that then they'll justify it as moral. We're saving lives or, or we're preserving uh, the purchasing power of the dollar. Or we're doing it for you folks. So they try and make that seem like they're on the high ground of morality. But if you recognize that those are the lies and you sweep those off the deck, you understand that they're covering up a bold, a bold face, immoral act because they're stealing, they're killing, they're plundering. So we have to understand what this word conspiracy means. And I think even though they themselves justify their acts as being for some higher good, most people, especially the victims, would definitely classify what they're doing as a conspiracy. So let's call it what it is. Right. I mean, it's amazing to see just the vast amount of wealth that these people have been able to accumulate for themselves so much. Um, 
you know, the statistics, something like six people in the world have as much wealth as the whole bottom 50% of the planet. Um, so this is, you know, they're getting something for their efforts. And it, it's, uh, you know, people got to wake up to, to figure out how to stop because it's just a massive money suck going up to the top. And the whole system is set up that way. So let's get Mads perspective on all of this. Mads, um, do you want to comment on just either the nature of the cartel system or the criminal nature or the, or the idea of conspiracy in general, uh, and then lead in if you want to the coronavirus or current events more specifically? Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I also use this uh, conspiracy theory when I talk to people, you know, I'm just saying, Hey, conspiracy, it's, um, it's a political economic crime committed by, by more than one person. And if anybody says that that, that does not exist, then uh, you know, they are literally idiots. And also etymologically idiots, because an idiot in the old, old Greek language was a person who, didn't, who refused to take part in democracy, who refused to take up a public office when he was uh, summoned to that by, by, by lottery. Uh, they would have a lottery, and then if he was... I was chosen to take out a job. He was, he was an idiot. And there's a lot of idiots around who, who refuse to look at these things. And you can, you can, you can throw as much evidence uh, to, towards them and they will still, uh, still not pay any attention to it. They are, yeah, they, they are really refusing to, to, to take the red pill, uh, no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the biggest problems we have is that these people are so powerful that they're, they, they're never on trial. Um, we had this uh, thing with, for example, Smedley Butler um, in, in the 1930s, where some of the most powerful uh, families in, in America were trying to make a fascist coup. Butler, as a general, and he went to the Congress and said, you know what, there's a, there's a conspiracy to take over the power of the United States. So it was all foiled. And every, everything, everybody went back to normal. No, nobody, nobody got on trial. And the same thing with 1917, when uh, Rothschild through J.P. Morgan bought 25 of the largest uh, newspapers in America and managed to persuade the Americans that Germans would spear babies on church doors in Belgium. That's what they put on the front, the front uh, page for, for a few weeks. And, um, and that was an amazing achievement, considering half the Americans at that time had at least one parent who was, who was German. And 20% of the American, uh, American citizens at that time had both parents with German, as, uh, German ascendants. So it was amazing to persuade uh, Americans who were Germans <laughs> to... That, 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 that German people would, 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 uh, would do that to babies. It's absolutely crazy. And obviously, after the war, of course, uh, everybody realized that, that probably wasn't true. Uh, in fact, Germany had won the war until America came in. They had won the war. They beat up Russia. They were 15 kilometers outside Paris, and the Germans offered a truce, a peace. Everybody just go home. Let's call it even. Let's, not, let's just stop the fighting. That was the real, what, what, what the Germans really did, yeah? And um, and then there was no there was no consequence for J.P. Morgan and Rothschild for for these media lies. And 103 years later, the media lies are exactly the same. It was the same with Gaddafi. Oh yeah, Gaddafi he killed his um, his uh, his citizens, and it was it was 
it was one 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 person from Amnesty International who were, came out with some misinformed uh, rumors, and it was circulated in the press as if it was true. This person from Amnesty, uh, a few months after Gaddafi was murdered in the most atrocious way, admitted, "Oh well, actually, it probably wasn't true." And yet, uh, there's no consequence for the for the lying media. Even the war propaganda is illegal according to international law. There were no consequences for the politicians. And the same thing with the with the 1991 uh, first Gulf War, where they 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 they, they had this uh, agency, um, marketing agency in America. I think it was called Knowlton's and something, um, where the owner was friends with George Bush Senior, and they said that. That uh, what would what would really stir up uh, the emotions in the American public would be if if we if, if we say that Iraqi soldiers took babies out of the uh, incubators and threw them on the concrete floor. If you say that many times, and uh, if, especially if you get someone a pretty woman saying this, crying, so they took in a Kuwaiti princess. Who, who cl and then she claimed that she was a nurse, which was not true. She'd never worked a day in her life. She was a princess, but um, but she could cry. She dressed up as a nurse, went to the United Nations. She cried and said that she saw that with her own eyes, and everybody believed it. And then they they started this war. So they are they are, are, are using all these same these same uh, stories over and over again. We see it all the way through history. All these false flag attacks, and there are no consequences. So. In my political party, we, we, we insist on there has to be a new Nuremberg. There has to be a Nuremberg with all these war criminals. There has to be, they have to face some consequences for what they're doing. We can then make a recon reconciliation. We can make maybe a, a lifted finger, or it could be maybe a, a fine. But, but there has to be some consequences, and it has to be recognized that they are criminals. Yeah, not only are they not punished, but how often do we see them get promotions? <laughs> I mean, we see these very war criminals, the war criminals get promotions. Um, one of the things that I've learned about recently through the work of Whitney Webb, principally, I don't know if you've read some of her articles that, uh, about the history of the biowarfare programs, but linking it into the coronavirus where people that may have been involved in the anthrax attacks that we found out that that strain in 2001 came from Fort Detrick. And a lot of the people that were surrounding that mystery wound up getting promoted and are the people who are in charge today of a lot of this pandemic response. So it's just, you know, again, the same group of people that apparently committed crimes in the past, actually get promoted and then will be in these uh, positions of power for the next, you know, potential false flag operation. And you see him just rolling them out. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And then the control of the media, maybe Mads, you could talk about this a little bit. It actually creates, because people hear it over and over again, creates this cognitive dissonance in people where when you present them with alternative information, they just can't hear it. Yeah, I mean, we, we just saw it with the, with the corona, and now we see it with this um, this uh, horrible accident, horrible event with the with the riots in, in in America. But we see that it's all been planned. There's always, or very often, there is an exercise at the same time. So you had the event 201, which was uh, taking place in John Hopkins University in New York, uh, funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and World Economic Forum. 
and um, and where they pretty much uh, planned this pandemic, pandemic number one. And you have Bill Gates coming out saying in tel- on, te- on on live on television, we call this this pandemic number one. Um, there will be a pandemic number two. How does he know? And he he he's so arrogant. He know he he feels so secure that he will go out and say it. And there are going to be an exercise in September. What happens with if a really lethal virus is released into the public? So, which is why on Friday that I'm organizing a demonstration in, uh, in Denmark, where we are going to um, to hand over written demands to the American, the Chinese, the Russian, the French, and the uh, British embassy to close down all biological weapon labs. It has they have been illegal since 1925. Yet they are still in full inauguration, and they are creating and they are creating diseases. And uh, I'm not a scientist, you know. I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a bond trader. That's what I know about. Um, I buy and sell futures and options and bonds, government bonds, mortgage bonds. But um, but these people, you know, there are there are experts um, uh, who say who 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 I mean Nobel Prize winners who say that these a lot of these diseases have been made in a lab. Including HIV and, and cancer and mm-hmm. and a lot of the uh, well all these swine flu and uh, COVID and all that. You know. It is amazing that um, as the narrative rolls out, nobody's going. I mean, you know, there there's a, I guess a little bit of controversy. Did it start in Wuhan, or of course, did the Chinese make it in the lab? But by and large, the mainstream narrative poo-pooed any notion that it could have been made in a lab. And yet the evidence, I mean, just why are human beings, it's kind of like, why do we build nuclear weapons? Why are we funding the government to, to make these viruses in the first place? I mean, and how many weird diseases have come up since we started doing that? You know, were, were there weird diseases that just magically appeared before humans started manufacturing biological weapons, you know, maybe we should really revisit this and think about not allowing this kind of thing to go on. But, um, you know, we don't have time to have a real in-depth conversation in the mainstream before they're moving on to the, to the riots now or whatever, you know, moving on to the next thing. So you forget about what happened a month or two ago. Um, Mr. Griffin, I wanted to, while, while I have you here, I wanted to try to see what your thoughts were about the potential treatments for uh, the coronavirus. I've done some looking into the whole uh, hydroxychloroquine thing. It appears to me that hydroxychloroquine and zinc, um, if people start taking that combination early on when they first get symptoms, it seems to be really helping clear things up. And yet you're seeing the same, you know, the mainstream media is just coming out against it. And even for example, uh, pharmaceutical companies and the government will pay for peer-reviewed tests. Granted, they're peer-reviewed and they come out, they say, oh, hydro- hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. But then you read the paper and you know they're not taking it with the zinc or they're only giving it later on in the, uh, in the process when symptoms have already progressed beyond where the treatment is, is effective. And so just a lot of little tricks to kind of get people to, no, don't look at that. You know, that's a that's not a patented drug that big pharma can make a lot of money on. Instead, everyone's looking at the vaccine and these really expensive antiviral drugs. And so as I was looking over World Without Cancer uh, about B17, also not patentable, uh, I, I really saw a lot of correlations between 
um, the way that the media and the scientific community is treating uh, these potential uh, cheaper cures or treatments for COVID uh, with a lot of the same ways that they treat the, uh, the whole cancer situation. Have you thought about that connection? Do you see similarities? The, I, it just seems to me like the machine is still rolling just like it was in 1970 with the cancer industry. You're absolutely right. It is, it is rolling. In fact, it's really, it's really flying right now. Yeah, the amount of money. You know, the, the old adage, follow the money. And if you're, if you're a good news reporter, you follow the money and usually find out what's going on. And that was usually good enough uh, for our kind of work for many years. But now, now the other thing, follow the power, is also added to that list. And we see that, especially in the in the coronavirus theater, it's not just a, the money that's going to be made on the sale of vaccines and other treatments now being made, by the way. I guess many people know by now that if you if a patient is sent to the hospital and um, they have the flu, well, the hospital might get, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred dollars from Medicare. But if the diagnosis says it's uh, coronavirus, they get... Uh, I think it's 13,000. And um, if uh, they put them on a ventilator, the hospital gets 39,000. And you know, if it's on the death, death certificate, I don't know who's making money on that, but everything they do is tied to, to money. And that is another reason we have so many distorted statistics. People are dying of, they get run over by a bus. Uh, they're gonna say, oh, he died of coronavirus because we just did a swipe on his, on his uh, foot. And well, we found one of those viruses on his foot. And of course, he was squashed by the bus, but nevertheless, we found the virus. So we call that a, a coronavirus thing. And they, they don't even know that they found the virus, by the way, because they're not using a test for a virus at all. So, yeah, so follow the money, and you can see a lot of this um, become obvious that they're motivated by making money. And especially when people like Gates and all of the people at the World Health Organization and the CDC who are funded by Gates to, to a large extent, totally beholden to what he wants them to do. They're all saying, yeah, well, this lockdown is terrible, but we're not gonna get back to normal until everybody on the planet is vaccinated. And you just, they're all repeating that. And of course that comes from Mr. Gates. He's the first one that started that. And now you hear it everywhere because that's what they know that that's what they're supposed to do. If they want to keep the grants coming and keep the funding coming, they have to fit into that pattern. So when you think a vaccination from a company in which Mr. Gates is heavily invested and has given by force to everybody on the planet and is paid for by taxes, <laughs> it's not a bad marketing model. You know, it's, it's hundreds of trillions of dollars. So we can understand what's going on. But now we get to this thing of power. What's that all about? Well, why are they locking people down? And uh, why are they having, why are they organizing riots and things? What's that all about? Who's, is, is, is it money there? Well, I'm sure there's plenty of money to be made in all that, but there's something else. And that's this power question. There are people, in amongst this group that we're talking about that not only are interested in having all the money in the world, they wanna control everybody in the world. They want them locked down. They don't, want, they don't want them out in the streets or forming campuses like I was talking about, campuses of Red Pill University, getting organized, pushing back. They don't want people talking, getting together. They want them locked down and isolated. 
Why? Because they want to establish total physical control over everybody. And, and, and they're taking away their jobs, but okay, don't worry, folks, we'll send you some money from the federal government. We'll just make it, we'll get our friends at the Federal Reserve to create it out of nothing and loan it to the federal government. And then the federal government can dish it out to all of the people that lost their jobs. And so where's the money being made there? That's not making money. That's putting those people into chains. That's putting those people into total obedience to the federal government so that they have to do exactly what they're told or they won't have food, shelter, clothing, or anything else. So it's all, it's, you follow the money and now I say follow the power and you'll, you'll be able to figure it out uh, I think any any high school kid and probably a lot of grade school kids can figure it out if they follow the money and follow the power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is mind boggling when you think about, I mean, once you're, once you hold the bag in terms of money creation, it can't just be about money anymore because you can make as much money as you want. It's got to be about something else. And I do think that you start to see the, by the way these people are acting that it, it is definitely a power grab on their part. They really feel like uh, for whatever reason, that they can have control uh, over the vast majority of the rest of us, and they keep making moves in this direction. Um, even when you think the moves are going to lose the money, maybe in the short term, but they're going to gain power in the long term, they're definitely going for it. And well, I would add to that, that the whole value of money, really, when you think about it, is the power it can buy. So the, the game really is power. And money has always been, up until now, the path to power. If you have a lot of money, you have a lot of power. And now, of course, you can have power socially or uh, because of your influence or your name or something, and that gets you money. But the equation is heavily balanced the other way. That if I were uh, in, in high, high enough, enough up the ladder, if I were a high-level uh, non-commissioned officer, or certainly if I were a commissioned officer, I could have housing provided. I could bring my family on base, given a nice house. I'm a general. I have a limousine and I secretaries and I, private airplanes, I don't, but I don't have to buy any of it. I have units, I have credit depending on my rank in the system and how obedient I am to the system. And this is what we're moving into where money is really not gonna be necessary. It's just when you, it'll be based on your rank. So uh, we're come, we come back to this issue of money versus power. It's really power that we're talking about. And the time may come when money won't even be a factor. Mads, anything to add to that? Yeah, well, um, I have I have a, a little bit of a dystopian <laughs> a dystopian view. I'm actually a very optimistic person and um, and cheerful and so on. But um, at the moment, I'm actually being a little bit uh, dystopian because I, I look at uh, what's going on and I look at the facts and um, and they look horrible. It's only if they don't use it that it won't go 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 horribly wrong. If you if you if you add the, the three different things up, you have the um, the five G masts, and they, that's a, that's a weapon. It belongs to the to the um, to the Ministry of Defense in every country because it's a weapon. So it can be it can be it can be used for crowd control, but it can also kill you. It can destroy even a house. And um, if you just look at the, here in Denmark, we have the highest, together with America, we have the highest um, um, allowed um, ra radiation, allowed EMF radiation, which is not something to call 9 million, I believe, microwaves. But, but that's on average over six minutes. You actually, if you make a spike, you can make it 10,000 times larger without even breaking the law. And that means that you could 
because the 5G is different from with 3 and 4G. That 3 and 4G is like a soup that comes out everywhere, but 5G, it, it goes straight to your phone, your smart meter, your smart television, your smart uh, refrigerator, your smart everything. Um, so you could legally, you could send a signal to, for example, me or, or you, um, which is 10,000 times larger than the 9 million if it's a spike, if it's only a few seconds, and that's enough to, to remove you from the surface of the earth. Mm. And, uh, and then you have the whole concept, this about having a weapon outside every third house. That means that, that they could, either because we are forced to go around with a contract tracing uh, on our phone, um, then they know where we are, or, in, which I'll get to in a moment, the microchip they're going to, infor, for, uh, to insist we all put into our bodies, they will know where we are. And that means that a person like me, they could say, Matt, you know, you're allowed to be where you are in north of Copenhagen. But if you are five kilometers from the parliament, you will sense an, 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 a slight annoyed uh, sensation in your body. If you come four kilometers within, it's going to be unbearable. If you're one kilometer away, you're dead. So they can program these masts if they want. We have, uh, this, is in, this is legally and in, in practice, it's possible to make it guard towers, Gestapo guard towers in the concentration camps. And that is going to be outside every single house. So a lot of people would, would surrender and, uh, and say that resistance is futile. Come on. I mean, they can, <laughs> they can just press a button. In, in fact, anybody who can hack the system can. I mean, you might, you might not even get, be killed by the, by the government. It could be your neighbor's uh, 17-year-old son. It could be a, a, a foreign um, secret service in another country. It could be any, the whole world would be able to kill anybody they wanted if, as long as they can, can, uh, can uh, hack a computer. So that's the 5G post. There's two more. Then there is the, the microchip I just mentioned, the ID2020. In 2020, there's a plan that the whole world should be microchipped. Obviously, the easy way to explain to make people understand its reality is because uh, Bill Gates wants us all to have two, two of them each. So that's 14 billion multiplied by 477 pounds. Thousand dollars, six thousand billion US dollars. So that's a lot of good arguments for for doing this. But that's not. It's the, the money. It's not important for them. It's not the money. It's the fact that this microchip. There is. It's a Danish corporation called Bychip, and they got funded with one hundred and thirty-eight million dollars. And and they can make now in this chip, not microchip, but nanochip. It's so small you can't see it with your eye. And there's the information on your medical data, all your data from the government, but also, more importantly, all your, your financial data, your bank account. And they're going to put in there, they're going to put a centralized cryptocurrency. So that, that is the mark of the beast. So whether you believe in, in God or not, it's clear that the people uh, who are, uh, are you know, making this, this, uh, this Shakespearean play we are living in right now they certainly have read the bible because it's the mark of the beast they want us all to have this microchip with a nanochip inside it uh, that in a vaccination so that uh, they can control us because i mean resistance is futile if you have if you can't buy anything if they turn off your chip and if you if they can kill you with a 5g man i mean that's the perfect for them that's the perfect control system um, the, the slaves can no longer resist. They can, they can, they can starve us to death. They can annoy us by just like 
giving us small radiation so that we are very irri irritated. That if you do some some studies on on rats and mice, you have uh, you know a, a one group, a control group where, where they're just living friendly, no no radiation, no EMF radiation, and they're just living the ordinary life, whatever, everything is fine. You have another group where you give them a little bit of EMF radiation, and you see they become very very irritable and they they start fighting and biting each other. So this is what will happen. They can they can control the mood of people and and create riots whenever they want. So, and and then the third thing, of course, is the bio biological and bacteriological and chemical weapons laboratories where they can create all the disease they want. And they talk openly about depopulation. They state it. Some people say they want to kill uh, fifteen percent of the world population. Some people say they want to kill kill a billion. Some people want it to come all the way down to only 500 million survive. So they want to kill 7 billion. I, it's not my words. It's it's their own words. These are the most powerful people in the world. So they can kill you with either with the disease they create in these bioweapon labs. They can kill you with 5G or even in the vaccination. When they give you the microchip, the nanochip in the vaccination with all your, the, the, the cryptocurrency and all, the, all your data, they can put in any kind of disease they they have all all different types of of uh, of, of uh, cancer they can give you you might die in 10 years 20 years and if you live very healthy you might live 25 or 30 years uh, i don't know but but the the, the, the thing is they want the sustainable development and sustainable that means it's a world without you and me certainly it's a world with only 500 million according to them so it should be them and whoever they they deem appropriate to to survive um, and, and so this is a very dystopian, dystopian view, but, but when we have now got a legislation in Denmark, de facto making a former dishwasher, and I don't have any, I deeply respect hardworking people like dishwashers, but maybe nobody should be, not, not a dishwasher, not anybody else, should not be a dictator who can decide, or anytime he wants, legally, our Minister of Health can now legally say that the entire nation of Denmark shall be forcibly vaccinated. It's not, it's not, it's not going to be a referendum. It's not going to be voted about in the parliament. If he decides that right now in this moment, tomorrow, the police and the military will have to go from, from door to door and, uh, and forcibly vaccinate everybody. Um, and that will, be, <laughs> that will be civil war because obviously people will defend themselves and the police won't do it. I speak with police. The police support all my demonstrations. They come up to me and say, Matt, we like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. they, I, I, when I apply for, for a demonstration, I have it in 10 minutes. When I, say, when I press go on my email, I get it, the, the permission from the police in 10, maximum 20 minutes every time. And they come out and when I have a demonstration, they come out and I chat with them. I mean, after half an hour, I say, you know what, I have to go back to what I'm, what I'm here for. And, uh, and when they and, and I asked them to come and, and see because we might have some extinction rebellion or an Antifa people coming to destroy our demonstration. So I asked them, you know, uh, I like you to come. So even people in our demonstration, we are actually we think it's great when the police is there because they're there to protect our constitutional rights of, of assembly and freedom of speech. And they and they I think they they prefer to do that than going from house to house. And forcibly vaccinate everybody. So, so what I'm saying here, the last thing point I want to make is, if they don't want to use the law to forcibly vaccinate everybody, then why do we have it in the first place? We don't need it. We don't want it. It's against uh, our Danish traditions. I mean, we've had democracy for eight, nine hundred years. Uh, eight, a thousand years ago, we would meet uh, two places in Denmark. We would meet and discuss uh, our problems. We have a long, long tradition. 
of, of, of sorting our differences uh, between each other. Sometimes with a mediator, sometimes a king had to come in, sometimes a judge. But we have a long tradition. This is not something we want. So why do we have it? Why do we need a 5G weapon outside our door? Yeah, well, they're not going to use it as a weapon. Well, then let, let's find another technology to have internet, right? Let's have cable or something else that, uh, which can't kill us, you know? <laughs> so I'll finish my rant. Well, you know, here, I don't know what the timing was like in Europe, but here in the United States, they literally rolled out the 5G as soon as the lockdown started. So like they took our freedom of assembly away, which with no comp, uh, even uh, any kind of commentary by the mainstream media, like, can we have a discussion about the importance of our right to assemble? (laughs) Nope, got to shut everything down, coronavirus, you know, and just like you're talking about, suddenly the unelected health officials have all the power, like how... How is that uh, a real way to deal with this situation? And then they were rolling out 5G. I know even in my community, my small community here in Northern California, they put up a couple of 5G towers uh, in the in the big city of 20,000 people just north of here. And I know there would have been 500 people out there protesting if it if we hadn't been under lockdown. And instead, you know, nobody even knew it was going on. And no one was paying attention because they were too scared of the coronavirus. So... Pretty amazing, actually, to see all of these things kind of coming together at once with the ability of, like Mr. Griffin was discussing, just giving this handful of people uh, an incredible amount of power. Um, And unfortunately, you know, I kind of share your view. Well, it's really easy to be um, to uh, to not have a real you know, feeling of a bright future, feel a little depression or anxiety about the way things are going because this rollout right now is so huge. Um, You kind of made a reference even to Agenda 21. I I think that's why your party, JFK 21, has that number in the name. Um, But, I mean, there's a big rollout that's happening right now. And in some sense, maybe it's a good thing in that they're showing their hand and if people have eyes to see then they can see and and uh you know hopefully act accordingly and uh also what you were talking about is getting the police i think you know getting the police and the military to stand down it may be one of the solutions we need to be looking at because you know it's these people that are following orders um that are if they if they just continue to follow orders i mean it could it could become a civil war if they stand down and say hey i'm not gonna you know people have human rights i'm not gonna do that i'm not gonna follow that then uh, i think we could have a chance and so um maybe maybe one of the avenues for for trying to build a brighter future um mr griffin you have anything to add right now well, there's so much we could continue to talk about, but I think all of the major points have been covered. Uh, I think that we need to focus more on solutions, possible solutions. It's easy to get so wrapped up with this is wrong and that's wrong and isn't this terrible. And I do that myself and you have to, especially when you're talking to somebody who's just awakening to this. But we have to be clear on what we're going to do about it. And uh, I came across something just last night that upset me and it's in that category. There was a a news story that we put up on our need to know news. By the way, if anybody wants to see our evaluation of the news, you can um, find it at needtoknow.news. Anyway, the story was about um, uh, Mr. Trump and his reaction to these these riots. And Mr. Trump was uh, 
condemning the weakness of the governors and the weakness of the city mayors and the weakness of the police who were not responding and not putting down these uh, these rioters with physical force. That's what they're there to do. And of course, uh, that comment and that ob that observation was very popular. And uh, but it gave me kind of a sick feeling in my stomach because in my view, that's not the solution. I think it's the problem. I think it, you were talking about conspiracies. Let's talk about that. Is it possible? I'll tell you in advance, I think it's more than possible, but I'll phrase it as a question. Is it possible? Is it possible that what they really want is more and more fear? Do they really want blood in the streets? Do they really want somebody killed, some innocent people killed? So that they can then go and call for martial law, which is the end game of our enemies. Is it possible that these are people are playing a role and that when we come forth, whether it's President Trump or anybody and say, we want martial law to put down these people, are we stepping into the trap? And I think we are. I think we are. And nobody's talking about this. It's a right. very unpopular point of view. I think that what we should be doing is, let me back up. Could we stop these riots any other way than with martial law? And the answer is yes. Who is causing these riots? Where's the money coming from? We all know it's George Soros. We all know it's the deep state. We all know that there are certain organizations out there. Why do we go and pick these people up and put them in prison instead of somebody that wants to go back and open up their hair salon? Why are we putting innocent people in, in prison and letting people like Soros and these agitators, they're professionals, they're revolutionaries, and we let them go and hardly even, we just say, go ahead, boys, do what you want to do. And when, that's why I think it makes my stomach upset is because I know when I hear people say, yeah, we need martial law, they're playing into the hands of our enemy. Why don't we get these people to stop saying that and say, how about arresting the agitators and the the, tra the traitors to America and get on with it and do your duty that way. Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my final thought. Well, um, let's, uh, before we wrap it up completely here, I'd like to kind of do a comparison and contrast while we have Mads here to describe the Yellow Vest movement in Europe, because we didn't get a whole lot of news. Like right at the beginning, we heard about it here in the U.S., and then the mainstream media didn't really want to talk about it, but it seems like we could do, I think, a bit of a comparison and contrast. It, from my perspective, the Yellow Vest movement was more organic and really was rising up against the, this controlling faction, um, as opposed to maybe what we're experiencing now in the United States, which unfortunately, uh, I think, has been co-opted by that faction and is, is going to be used um, to further the ends of that elite class. Is that, is, was that your perception? What, um, what was your experience of the Yellow Vest movement in, in Europe, Mads? Well, I, I'm 100% I'm, I'm convinced that the Yellow Vest movement was a legit, a real uh, movement, people's movement. I'm 100% I'm certain about that. Um, Macron was a former employee of Rothschild Bank. Um, he was clearly, he's clearly a bankster stooge and, uh, and, um, and so the, the, the people movement is 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 is, uh, is absolutely uh, correct, and they 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 have they, they, a lot of the of the points they 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 want is is the key issues of our party, what we have in our party. So just good solutions uh, for everybody to have a good life, and um, and they also wanted to have um, 
they wanted to turn into a political party where with only one key issue, and that was um, RIC, which stands for uh, Referendum Initiative. Basically, that I think it was if 1% of the population, or maybe it was less, I think it was maybe 1% of the population demanded a referendum, then you, you, you had to have a referendum. And if uh, it was agreed in the referendum, then that was law. The politicians had to implement that law immediately. And that would be a way to, to have more um, democracy in France. And that, that's something they, they, they work on. And uh, yeah, so I, I think what's part of the reason why they make all these um, 5G masks, the, the forced vaccinations and, mm -hmm. uh, and all the lockdown and the pandemics is, is to, to, uh, to stop these uh, people movements because they are one of the few that has not been started by banksters. Uh, the French Revolution was started by banksters. The Russian Revolution was started by banksters. A lot of the revolutions we've seen, not all, have been started by banksters. So they don't want something that they, they don't want something getting out of control that they have not started, which is why they 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 stop them down there. And, and our party, for example, don't get any airtime in Denmark. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And then here in the United States, they can turn it into a left-right thing or a black-white thing. And suddenly we're having race riots instead of uh, riots against, you know, the the corporate establishment that is making this big uh, power play against us right now. Um, you know, while we have the two of you together, I think we should maybe talk about like these potential solutions or ways of organizing, but especially, you know, the differences between America and Europe or maybe the ways that we can work together actually. Um, to create more of an international movement uh, to try to get people to wake up to what's really happening and then unify against what's happening. I mean, obviously, I think the elite class wouldn't spend the time and the money that they do for social control if they weren't scared. They know we have the numbers. I mean, if enough people figured it out, they wouldn't have a chance. So, um, you know, what are what are your thoughts, Mr. Griffin, about moving forward in terms of, of organizing and then uh, also just because we do have Mads here, maybe working together or figuring out a more international strategy. Well, first of all, I'll start with that, la that last thought. I would like nothing better than to work very closely with Mads on this and uh, I'm very interested in the formation of a, a real political party. I'm not a fan of political parties as such, but I think they're part of uh, a part of the human landscape for <laughs> as far as we can see into the future. So instead of complaining about them, we just have to do our best to make them work for liberty for a change. So I would, uh, part of our plan with Red Pill University and all of that is that after we have our foundation, we want to uh, participate in the formation of real political movements. And um, tentatively, we've chosen the name the Born Free Movement because it has, it says everything we believe in we're born free and we want to stay free and you don't have to explain too much so it's all there and we got that wonderful song you know born free free as the wind blows and all that so uh yeah i'm really interested in political movements but i understand that unless they have a rudder unless the people who are in charge of those movements really understand the issues at a deep level they'll be easy to co-op or they'll just drift off course by their own and you'll wind up right back where you started from so yeah, I'd like to uh, like to uh, know more about that, uh, Mads, and we can possibly talk someplace uh, offline and 
and come up with a conspiracy, as they'll call us now, <laughs> and not say that we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, yeah. What so what we do? I've already I've already outlined in my opening statement that our solution is to use the Red Pill University and the Red Pill Expos as sort of the broad end of the megaphone, the funnel. This is where we broadcast the, the message at a very simplistic, easy to understand level that's based on integrity. And in other words, we're not just making up slogans just because they sound good, but they do have a basis to them in truth. And so we want to attract as many people as we can in, into the red pill movement. But the end, the solution now is we've got to start creating these campuses or boots on the ground, local organizations. We have to build those. I think we're ready now finally to do that. We've got three, three groups right now underway forming uh, university campuses right here in California. I'm, uh, and already they're beginning to do things even before the structure isn't in place. So uh, I'm just going to say, if anybody wants to learn more about what we have in mind, come on to our site, if you will. It's uh, redpilluniversity.org. So a lot of information is there on the front page, but look past the information, as important as it is, look past to the idea of the campuses, and then we can begin to not only spread more information and truth and enlightenment, but we can begin to uh, put the foundation in place where we can begin to elect representatives to our, our city council, to our county board, county board of directors and board, the school board, get a constitutional sheriff who, and a, a police chief and all those things have to be done built up from the bottom up. So if you're interested in participating in that effort, then please start at uh, redpilluniversity.org and I'll see you there. Yeah, sounds like a plan. More and more people need to be getting involved for sure if we're going to be able to slow or stop uh, these corporate actors and the corporate government actors just kind of rolling over us. I mean, the, you know, the democratic system's not functioning in that way. Um, for the vast majority of us these days. Um, Mads, do you want to just talk about from your perspective in Europe, how the political organizing is going? Yeah, first I would say that I'm definitely very interested in the Red Pill University. I think it's a great idea and I have a lot of friends who would like to contribute if they can and then learn uh, as will I. Um, well, basically, I also agree with this whole thing about political party. I mean, my idea about, uh, about uh, changing something is that we have to Make them, we make demonstrations, we have to claim that they do something wrong, so we write notice of liabilities to them, so we inform them that they are now in bad standing, and if there's ever a democracy in Denmark, they're going to, 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 to go to court. So that will, that will make them fight between each other internally, I'm sure, and a lot of people quit, and, um, and, and, and you, 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 you will red pill some of them, because some of them are good people, they just don't know they're part of a mafia, uh, a crime organization. So it's very important, and, um, and and one of the main key issues we have in our political party is to decentralize as much as possible and move taxation away from human beings over to towards corporations. It's it's very very important. So, for example, just one quick thing is if you if you uh, put a tax a tubing tax, but on everything, every transfer of money, if you take one percent, you can remove income tax and corporation tax totally, and that way you will tax the multinational corporations for the first time in history because they will transfer money. They cannot operate without transferring money. So that is one idea. 
And um, and I also agree that the reason we have to have a political party is because that's what, what we have. It's part of our culture. This is what how we do things in the in the Western world. And um, and I know there's a lot of, of anarchist. So and you meaning without an archon meaning an evil dictator. So we are a lot of people who are anarchists here. We want to have a society without evil dictators. That's what a real anarchist is. A real an anarchist is not some wealthy fifty-year-old um, guy who says he, he he's an anarchist because he doesn't want to pay tax. That's not an anarchist. That's not a real anarchist. He's just an asshole. He's just an egoist, right? No, no. A real anarchist is someone who's against evilness. That's a real anarchist. And I know we are a lot of people, but we also know that if you have been on welfare your entire life, and if you've been trained in the, in the educational system to follow orders and do as you're told, these people, they have a right to have a good and decent life. So it will take many, 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 many years uh, before uh, everybody can just stand on their own feet totally. It will go fast, and it will go a lot faster than most people expect. If we decentralize, if we move in corporate uh, income tax, and, uh, and we have a welfare state, for example, through money creation. If you, instead of having the money creation going to, to real estate speculators, it goes to the population in form of, of citizen dividend. So the annual increase in the, in the money supply could go out to, to, um, to the citizen. For example, uh, very few people know that uh, Barack Obama doubled the monetary base in America. If he, if he hadn't done that, you could have paid a hundred thousand US dollars in money creation to every single family in America. A hundred thousand dollars. I believe that America would have been, even though it's a very successful and wealthy nation and so on, so but you would have been even a lot wealthier if if every family in America uh, from 2008 till 2016 had received a check for a hundred thousand dollars. And that would be have been spent when well, the multiplicator effect would have been in, enormous. So there are a lot of solutions. There are so many solutions, but we we need to to um, to, to to not just come not just come with solutions and and not just complain. We need also to form a political party to go in and be in part of the process in the council and uh, being senators, being in the parliament in order to 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 change it because they're not going to do it. I mean, they're all been, they're all paid for. They're all bought. All the politicians are bought. We have a, a de facto one-party state in Denmark. The entire political party, right? The blue, red, green, they all voted for the corona legislation. They all voted to, to break the constitution. I mean, the, the, the last part, bit, the tiny bit we have left is that we are allowed to make a demonstration if it's um, if we were allowed to gather more than 10 people if it was uh, a political uh, demonstration. We were allowed to do that. So I used that. So I made demonstrations. But but everything else has been taken away. Not not even Adolf Hitler could legally go into a home and forcibly vaccinate people. Not even Adolf Hitler could do that. And that's what that's the, the state of affairs in Denmark now. So yes, we do have to make political parts. We have to demand changes. And um, yeah, and I don't. I, I agree. It's not the best of the world, but that's just our culture. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it definitely seems like we're coming to a crossroads here where people are going to have to make a choice. And, you know, unfortunately, if they just continue to go along with the mainstream narrative and uh, the way that these power players in the corporations and in the governments just are, are, you know, pushing us along this path, if we go along it, then uh, we really are looking at a situation where our freedoms are going to be extremely limited in the future. So, um, 
you know, it's time for people to really make a choice, uh, decide that, that having individual autonomy is a, is a preferable existence to make your own healthcare decisions, um, you know, to make your own economic choices rather than having them dictated to you by people that are uh, obviously taking more for themselves than they deserve. Um, just in a, a final note, let's discuss, I, th I think one of the biggest tools that um, this elite class seems to really use against us, and, 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 you know, it's just become so prevalent here in the United States recently, but these divide and conquer strategies, which instead of allowing the people to realize what's actually going on and then unify, um, just turns us against each other, constantly squabbling with each other. Uh, even, you know, just so interesting with the coronavirus, for example, they would turn something that should have been, you know, they, if you're educated about science, here are the facts, let's make a healthcare decision. Instead, you know, everything got turned into, well, I'm a Democrat, so I think this is good, and I'm a Republican, so I think this is good, and then we're going to argue amongst ourselves. Well, it's like science and facts don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Can we just start, you know, figuring out the facts? But they don't want you to look at the facts. And then, of course, uh, just as soon as the facts overwhelmingly support that coronavirus isn't that big of a deal, well, here's the other divide and conquer technique. Let's do some race baiting. And now, you know what, 30 cities are going up in flames um, because white people and black people are getting in these in these conflicts and they and they're continuing to perpetuate this narrative that, you know, it's like white versus black instead of, hey, you know, we're all getting screwed by these rich guys. Let's look at them. <laughs> and so do you have problems, especially I mean, just me personally, um, it's so challenging to talk everybody wants to use the left right paradigm so as soon as you bring up politics then already they're looking for you to to fit one of the you know one of the prescribed boxes and then if they're on your side they feel like oh they're chummy but if they're on the other side they want to fight with you it's it, it's just amazing to try to tr get get out of that one and come up with a a way of discussing politics that just gets away from that and you know, focuses on um, the, the real issue, which is a few really rich people have a lot more power over the rest of us than they deserve. Um, Mr. Griffin, your thoughts on that? Well, that is the very reason I earlier mentioned the importance of identifying the ideology behind all of this. Mm -hmm. You're quite right. This is not an issue of left versus right or Republicans versus Democrats, or liberals versus conservatives, or any of that. You peel off those, all of those labels, and when you, once you get below that level, you find out that there are only two choices in the Western world. All right, in the Western world, there are only two choices, and that's individualism on the one hand, and collectivism on the other hand. Now, if you go to the Middle East, in some places in the world, you might find theocracy, but where you know people believe that their ruler is a is an agent of God, that's pretty much burned out in the world. Although in the Middle East, of course, it's still very prevalent. But in the Western world, the discussion that we're talking about takes place between people who either believe in individualism or collectivism. So I refuse to even talk about those other words. I, I want to talk about individualism versus collectivism. And of course, and that's not difficult to do, by the way, once people understand the basic meaning of those words. And those words are self-describing because it's the collective versus the individual. Mm -hmm. 
in a, in a nutshell, that it boils down to under collectivism, people believe that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. And then all you have to do to justify any atrocity is to claim that, oh, well, this is for the greater good, you know. And uh, so we have to sacrifice some people, maybe a million people or maybe five million people, but it's for humanity. And so forth. that's that's the game. Once people understand that that is the issue, then I, I've found it's relatively easy to talk with anybody um, because most people, when they think that through, realize that they are basically individualists. And uh, and unless they're on the payroll or so so filled with anger and emotion that they just they see you as some kind of a scorpion. Uh, and they don't they they only want to destroy you rather than talk about ideas, which happens a lot. Mm-hmm. But uh, most people are, are once you get into the uh, the solid ground of understanding the words you're using and what they absolutely mean, I find that we can make great headway. And uh, most of the people, mm, yes, most of the people that we find in our movement that are the strongest supporters have come from what we might call the other side. They thought they were buying into the slogans of collectivism mm-hmm. without understanding what they really meant. They sounded good. They sounded like we were, we were, we cared about people. We wanted to take care of the poor. We wanted to take care of the sick. We wanted to take care of the underprivileged. We wanted to, we wanted everybody to live, you know, the classical liberal dream, the utopia where everything was fine. Uh, but they didn't realize that in the practices uh, in order to, to follow the actual formulas that were being offered to us to achieve that role, we're leading in the opposite direction. So if you if you get the words out of it and just look at the at the logic behind the actions, it, I find that people say, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know it. I was a I was an individualist. I never knew it." Mm-hmm. So uh, to answer your question, I think the solution is to stop talking about these other words as though they have meaning. Because all of those other words are merely variants of collectivism. So you wind up saying, which form of collectivism is better, Nazism or communism? Oh, is that my choice? Thank you very much. No. <laughs> right. I'm, I want something that's totally different than both of those. And that's individualism. So that's my answer to the question. We're trying to put the word individualism and collectivism back into the, into the vocabulary. And we're making some good headway at it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean... You know, collectivism as a voluntary action can be virtuous. It's just, and on the flip side of that is if you don't have good boundaries as an individual, then you are going to get hammered. You know, <laughs> somebody's yeah. going well, to take the, advantage the of The that. answer to that is that uh, collectivism does does not allow for voluntary action. That's part of the definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a difference between collectivism and collective action. Right. Collective action is voluntary. I, I mean, just because I'm an individualist doesn't mean I have to move my piano alone. But right. I, as an individualist, I can't say, you, you, and you, you come and help me move my piano, or you go to prison. I say, would you please help me? And they say, yeah, you seem like a nice guy. I'll, I'll help you. So that's it. It's, it's the difference between coercion and voluntary action. It's very simple. You can't accomplish very much as a lone individual. Of course, you have to have collective action. Families work collectively, but that's not collectivism unless they have a very tyrannical parent or something that requires that the family must obey or they're severely punished. And that sort of creeps over into it. But the, the difference between freedom of choice and coercion is the underlying decision that people have to make. Yeah, I hear you. 
And Mads, what are your thoughts about trying to transcend these dichotomies, these false dichotomies that are so imprinted on people's minds and try to unify uh, politically against, uh, you know, these forces that would take control? Well, I, I, I agree with everything uh, Mr. Griffin said, but, but I, I want to add something is that um, what I try to do is, is uh, make a, take a focus on the argument uh, whether, whether we should use breadcrumbs or truth bombs. So whether you, uh, you, you, you say, you know, you know, you don't want to talk exactly about um, what kind of crimes the, the, um, the people that shouldn't be in power are committing, but just like kind of a, give them a little tiny hint and then they will all study and all find out. And to my, in my experience, it doesn't work. I mean, there are still people who believe that two planes can make three towers collapse in free fall uh, from a small fire. And, um, you know, so it doesn't happen. So I think we need to go, th go through with, through, through a, we just have to keep throwing uh, truth bombs. And, um, and you will find that as soon as we become just two people in a, in a, a, on a, on a dinner party or just two people uh, for lunch in a, in a company, then, then we, we win. Because uh, if one guy say, yeah, yeah, and you know this, and then he throws another truth bomb, and you throw another truth bomb, then everybody's looking at, the, at, at these two people and you just can't beat it. So it's only when we are, when we are one person, then they come up with all their uh, slander and, um, and call you names and so on. But, um, but when they do that, remember, when someone calls you a name, that's because you've already moved them from stage zero, which is zombie, to stage one, which is denial, to stage two, which is anger. So if someone is angry with you, well, well done. You already moved them two steps, only three more, through <laughs> negotiation, right. depression, and acceptance. <laughs> that's good. Well, I've been very successful lately, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you too. Well, great, guys. That was uh, an excellent conversation. I think uh, we've been at it for a while now. Maybe time to wrap it up. Do you want to just uh, give out those emails or, or those website uh, addresses again and uh, let people know where they can find out more about your work, Mr. Griffin? Yeah, I think the best place to begin. Well, first of all, we do have a commercial site where we have books and recordings on everything we're talking about. And that's realityzone.com, realityzone.com. But the think tank where we're talking about, we have nothing to sell but ideas and strategies. And that's redpilluniversity.org. Okay, great. And Mads? Well, our party is uh, JFK21. Dot DK, and uh, I have a YouTube channel which is just my name, and uh, people could sub subscribe on that if they wish. Okay, great. And there is a lot of uh, English language uh, information on on those sites as well. I can attest. So I hope everybody uh, checks it out. Uh, a lot to be learned, and uh, I truly hope that this conversation sparks the two of you getting together and doing some some real collaborative organizing that starts to kind of spread worldwide. I think, um, you know, no time like the present, and I can tell you I'll be doing my part to keep the fourth estate actually functioning as a real thing. <laughs> we may not have the high production values, but we're throwing as many truth bombs as we can, so... Um, you know, we'll keep working together to really try to make some, some actual change happen. 
Um, but uh, very much appreciate both of you being part of this roundtable discussion. And uh, we'll be looking forward to getting it out to the broader audience here uh, in the next couple of days. Um, thanks to you both. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll talk to you uh, at some, some point again in the near future as things keep rolling along. I mean, we need to keep these conversations going. So very much appreciate it. Thanks again. All right. Well, thank you. Bye. Thanks very much. All right, you guys have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another great roundtable discussion. I think Mads and I were both just happy to have a conversation with the legendary G. Edward Griffin, as he has been an inspiration to both of us. Much of the conversation centered around the criminal behavior of the corporate cartel and its centralized control over governments around the world. We were able to use Mads' own personal experience to provide evidence of how those who wake up to this behavior are blackballed from participation. After clearly identifying those at work to control society from above, both Mads and Mr. Griffin were able to apply this understanding to the recent coronavirus pandemic as well as the rollout of 5G technologies to paint a picture of the future that those of us at the bottom of the pyramid should be well wary of. Let's hope that the connection between Mads and Griffin will continue and result in an international organized political front against those who are currently building this worldwide network of control. Thanks again to Mads and G. Edward Griffin for their participation and to Rob Rubin for producing. I have been your host. My name is Doug McKenty. Find out more about my work at theshiftnow.com or The Shift with Doug McKenty on YouTube, Facebook, and all your favorite podcast hosting platforms. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Roundtable Discussions, and you can check out all our videos and more at transparentmediatruth.com or at the Transparent Media Truth YouTube channel. Stay tuned for roundtable discussion number seven, featuring Patrick Wood and Tom DeWeese, where we will dive into the relationship between the UN Agenda 21 and the coming technocratic surveillance state. Thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Take care.